Welcome to the American Countryside Podcast. I'm Andrew McRae, host of the daily syndicated show for over two decades. Heard on over 100 radio stations and XM Channel 147. I go on location to meet the people and places that tell the fascinating stories of past and present. And the American Countryside Podcast allows you to hear the full interview with our guests. On this edition of our podcast, we head to Commercial Street in Boston, Massachusetts for a story that may at first sound like a laughing matter. Some have called it the Great Molasses Flood. A huge tank of molasses burst in January of 1919, and a wall of the goo went rushing down the streets. A wall of molasses at its peak 25 feet tall, moving at a speed of 35 miles per hour. Stephen Puglio is the author of Dark Tide, the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. We went to the place where the tragedy unfolded, standing on a sidewalk along Commercial Street. Let me pause for a moment before you hear Stephen and make this note. I do all of my interviews for the American Countryside and this podcast on location. Sometimes we sit in a closed room where you don't hear any ambient sound. But for this interview, we decided to stand on the sidewalk where we could actually imagine what unfolded that day. So that's why you will hear some street noise and even a siren, faintly, in the background. Interestingly, you hear the siren at the point we talk about the tank bursting. No, I didn't edit that into the podcast, and no, we didn't pay them to turn on the siren when we got to that point of the interview. But just a little sidelight into how I do this show. So, with that, here's the story of the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Let's talk about uh, the Molasses Flood, and, and before the actual flood, we're on Commercial Street. What did Commercial Street look like right here? Commercial Street was really one of the busiest uh, business streets or thoroughfares in Boston at the time. Commercial Street docks, uh, most of the East Coast shipping left from these docks that we're at right now. Most of the shipping that went to Europe from Boston um, left from these docks. Uh, livestock, leather goods produce, beer, alcohol, anything you can imagine was shipped from these docks to the to those locations. There was a tank here. Was it just one tank, several tanks? What was here? There was one large tank here. Uh, it stood 50 feet tall, 90 feet in diameter, just to give you an idea of the scope of it. And it held about 2.3 million gallons of molasses when it was filled to capacity. The molasses steamers came up from Cuba and Puerto Rico and offloaded their cargo here and from here, the molasses was taken to a distilling plant in nearby Cambridge. What were they using the molasses for then? Uh, United States Industrial Alcohol, one of the largest uh, industrial alcohol companies in, in, in the nation at the time, used it for industrial alcohol for a number of purposes, uh, dyes and lacquers and paint thinners, things of that nature. But during the years 1914 through 1918, right up until the flood, uh, the majority of the molasses was used to produce industrial alcohol that was used in the production of munitions, high explosives, TNT, dynamite, nitroglycerin, that sort of thing, during the First World War. Was the tank normally completely full? How often would they kind of cycle through that molasses? The tank was full probably about uh, eight or nine times in 1917, probably about the same in 1918, the busiest uh, parts of the munitions production. So yes, it was full, and one of the lawyers in the court case that followed pointed out that 2.3 million gallons of molasses weighed about as much as 14,000 Ford automobiles of the day. So that gives you an idea of the amount of weight pressing against the side of the tank. This tank had problems from the beginning. Yeah, the tank leaked from the very start. Uh, it was built in a rather substandard way. Uh, the construction was overseen by a, by a person who really didn't have an idea about construction uh, regulations and couldn't read plans and couldn't read, uh, didn't know anything about a factor of safety, anything of that nature. And the tank leaked from day one. And when I say leaked molasses, I don't mean just 
pinprick leaks, but long 50-foot streams of molasses that would that would leak at the tank's seams. The seam, the tank was fastened together by it was, it was layers of steel fastened together by thousands of rivets, and the tank leaked from those seams on a regular basis. But in 1919, the leaks were, were it was more than a leak. January 15th, 1919, a little after lunchtime, about 12.30 p.m., a Boston police patrolman who was making his routine call back to headquarters from Commercial Street. As he's making the call, he hears a tremendous rumbling, grinding sound, and what he says later uh, sounds like uh, machine gun fire. Uh, turns around and sees literally the tank disintegrating before his eyes and a 35-foot wave of molasses disgorging from the tank and he makes one of the most unbelievable calls to headquarters that i that i think has occurred even to this day send all available rescue personnel immediately there's a wave of molasses coming down commercial street and indeed there was it uh, it, it starts and exits the tank at about 35 miles per hour it levels off to about 15 to 20 feet high 160 feet wide and literally destroys uh the commercial street waterfront in boston's north end People would think of molasses. You mentioned how fast it was moving, but it, it killed a lot of people. People couldn't get out of the way, and some people were in buildings and houses, and, and that trapped them, I guess, as well. Absolutely. Uh, 21 people get killed in, in the flood, including uh, a firefighter that's trapped underneath a nearby firehouse. Most people who die, die that day from uh, smothering in molasses. They can't get out of the way. It travels very fast. The rest of the people who die, die within the next few days, for the most part, from injuries, terrible injuries and infection um, that set in as a result of those injuries. So, yes. We'll get over the court case in a second, but you said, how do you clean up that much molasses? Uh, big issue. Uh, molasses just covered the waterfront uh, area, and the, on day one, they tried to, to put uh, water on it from fire hoses. didn't do much good. By day two, much of it had begun to harden, uh, and they tried saws, and they tried picks, and they tried um, blow torches, and that wasn't working. And finally, one firefighter had an idea that perhaps the salt water from Boston Harbor would indeed uh, cut the molasses. The brine would cut the molasses, and that is how they eventually got rid of it. It took months, um, uh, hundreds of thousands of gallons pumped directly from Boston Harbor. But Boston, really, I, sh I should point out the physical landscape of the city became covered with molasses beyond the north end because people tracked it on subways on pay phones it was on uh, in horse troughs that were set up around the city for horses to drink from so really the landscape of boston becomes covered with molasses for months following the flood Sometimes in history we tend to say, well, that was the molasses flood of 1919, that's the end of the story. But that was far from the end of the story because it really did impact even life today, uh, the, the ensuing court trial. Yeah, uh, one of the biggest uh, class action suits in Massachusetts history, one of the first in U.S. history, 119 plaintiffs take on U.S. industrial alcohol and indeed win the case uh, in a civil liability trial. Uh, beyond that, the, the really, I think, two major things come fr from the flood. Uh, building construction standards uh, begin to become imposed in Boston and then across the country as a result of the flood. The, before that, the tank didn't even require a building permit because it was considered a receptacle. So number one, uh, very stringent building construction requirements, that, the kind that we're familiar with today, really stem from the flood. And number two, the, the decision against U.S. industrial alcohol was one of the first court cases against a large industrial employer uh, during this period of prosperity in the mid-20s. That was in 1925. And I think really begins to shift the ground a little bit um, and, and people understand that big business needs to have some restrictions and some safety precautions placed upon them because they can't police themselves. 
you mentioned as well different themes running through the book, and you should mention the book now. We've we talked about the whole thing without mentioning the book yet, but uh, anarchists and, and uh, immigrants and all kinds of things that we have involved here. Yeah, Doc Tide, um, I think, really does tells the story on two levels. There's the, the story of the flood itself and the drama of the flood itself, and then that, I think, weaves with some of the major issues uh, that America was facing during this period. The anarchists, uh, Sacco and Vanzetti's comrades, very uh, violent and very active around the country, but in Boston especially. And uh, the defense, U.S. industrial alcohol, uses as its defense during the case, even though they present no evidence, that anarchists had blown up the tank. And so the anarchist theme weaves its way through the book uh, throughout. The immigration theme, the North End was home to Italian immigrants during this period, most of whom weren't citizens yet, and therefore most of whom couldn't vote. Uh, thus, when the tank was built, just feet from, from a residential area in this busy business area, uh, very little official protest, very little political protest. The, the these folks had no political clout to speak of. And when the tank was leaking from the beginning, very little protest uh, from the neighborhood. So the immigration theme weaves its way throughout, and, and the big business theme weaves its way throughout. So I, I like to say that if you know the story of the flood, you really know the story of America during this period of the 20th century because each of these issues quite literally touches the flood story in some way. The book came out in September of 03. Uh, it's done very well, both regionally here in Boston and nationally, I'm happy to say. It's called Dark Tide, uh, subtitled The Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919. One thing I would like to mention is that some of the folks that, uh, most of the folks who died or were injured were, as I said, poor city workers and, and immigrants. Um, and I think when you first hear about this story, when you first somebody first mentions the flood to you, uh, there is kind of an initial giggle that, that is elicited because of the substance involved, but really a tragedy. Um, as I said, people died, some terrible injuries, and people have asked me, why hasn't a book been done on this topic before? And I think one of the reasons is this nature of the substance. Had it been water, had it been fire, had it been an earthquake, I think it would have happened. Because it's molasses, uh, you really kind of had that problem of, well, was it a serious event? And, and I think that, coupled with the fact that um, a lot of new sources are introduced in this book, um, enabled me to put the book together. Stephen Puglio is a great historical author. You'll have to check out some of his other books. He tends to bring important yet more obscure events from the past to life. Today, you won't find much in Boston related to the tragic event. There's a marker noting those who lost their lives. It's said that for decades after the flood, you could smell the molasses in that part of town. And as Stephen mentioned, what took place in Boston spurred action for more safety and construction, with oversight into some of those items like the tank that ruptured in this case. Architects and civil engineers became important and essential parts of projects. Today, the site is a recreational complex with a baseball field covering much of the area of the old tank. It's a not-so-well-known piece of history to folks outside of the city, but nonetheless an unusual and important event in the nation in making work facilities safer for employees and the general public alike. Thanks for joining me on this journey to the site of the Great Molasses Flood. I hope you'll join us again as we travel the countryside. In Boston, Massachusetts, I'm Andrew McRae.